John chapter 4, and we want to be open to John chapter 4. Because I don't want you to think I'm making any of this up. And I would say like I would any week, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Would you pray with me one more time, please? God, we need you. With every breath, we need you. With every beat of our heart, with every pump of it, with every, with every second, with every millisecond that transpires, we need you. And I pray that we would really genuinely get it. Overcome every language barrier, every cultural barrier. Overcome the heat and anything else that could distract us, our human weaknesses, and today speak profoundly to each of us. Lord, immerse me in your Holy Spirit. Come upon me that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. Redeem every word, every second. Lord, may we be captivated, drawn in, and have so much fun in your word. And as we do, make this time perfect, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Life as we know it cannot survive without water. It's the first thing we seek on any other planet to see if it's sustainable to sustain life. As infants, our bodies contain roughly 78% water. As we get older, apparently we dry out a bit. Uh, We get somewhere between 50 and 65. Guys tend to have more water than women. Uh, Ironically, it's because of fat count that we have less of in certain parts of our body. But just the same. My body, for, for instance, contains about 16 gallons, 73 liters of water. It accounts for half of my bone weight, 64% of my skin, 73% of my brain and heart, and 83% of my lungs. In short, I need it to live. It lubricates joints, it digests food, it controls temperature, the foundation of every cell in my body. It insulates my brain, my spinal column, my organs, it flushes toxin and waste, and again, in short, I need it to live. Because I need it to live, God built within me and within you an involuntary system within us. So that when you lose 1% of that water contained, that's roughly the weight of an inflated football, European, by the way. Actually, it's roughly the same, by the way. My physical and mental performance start to wane. Yours too. My osmolites, things like salt, start to collect within my body to start engaging a system. So that by the time I have now lost 2 to 3% of my water, I start preparing what's called a thirst process. By that time, my major motor skills and my cerebral functions, my mental functions, are somewhat eroding. As a matter of fact, consistent dehydration or a lack of water, even to that point, can result in everything from seizures to organ failure. And in short, our bodies can't live without water, even too little of it. Because even with too little, we start to die. And because of that, God created within us an involuntary system that generates an appetite, a thirst, so that we know that something crucial in us, when it's lacking, we begin to become painfully aware of it. So physical thirst tells me that I'm in need of something crucial to life. Well, might I say in the same way that we're not just a physical being. Uh, I wouldn't say you're a person with a soul. I'd say you're a soul with a body. 
So this tent to keep alive is something that will need water to function. And inside, God created the same thing, but it isn't for water, or at least we'd say metaphorically, living water we would need. But inside, personally, every one of us, there's a thirst, an an annoying, chronic ache, a haunting, reminding me and you that there's something critical that is missing. And I keep showing up desperate for that filling, but the thirst always seems to return. And my consistent return testifies that where I am going is at best temporary. If it were for Jesus, we are all in that state with no hope. Yet God himself states in Jeremiah 2.13 that God's people have a choice. It's the choice we'll see here as Jesus meets this woman at her thirst. Both thirsts. The thirst physically, because something critical is missing, and without it she will die. And the thing inside, her soul that craves and thirsts, that if she doesn't get it, she's going to die too, because God created within each of us that craving. But he says, God speaking through Jeremiah in 2.13, that my people have committed two evils, that they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn for themselves cisterns, Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now it's one thing for an unbeliever, somebody who has not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, because let's face it, it tells us in the book of Proverbs, to the hungry soul, even the bitterest thing is sweet. But it's another thing for those of us who have finally found the oasis of Jesus Christ. Here, here is a woman who hasn't yet, but she's about to. We read in chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, therefore, because right before that, there was a bit of an argument between John's disciples and some of the Jewish leaders. They were arguing over purification and then trying to set John himself at odds with Jesus. Classic things that will happen, by the way, to those who aren't the friends of the bridegroom, but actually oppose the marriage. They will constantly get you thinking of yourself instead of the one who actually satiates that hunger. And they will get you thinking about how, how much better someone else is than you. And they'll argue over what it really means to be pure. And they will leave out the issue of repentance. We live in a world of that. And therefore, verse 1, that's the therefore, because that's what the therefore is there for. When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though it wasn't Jesus, but John, uh, Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he departed Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, Galilee, I remind you now, we're heading 60 to 80 miles north, 120 if we have to go the long way, which is the way most people would go. And what Jesus has done now is he recognizes he's a blip on the radar and it's an antagonizing one to the religious system and it's not his time to go toe-to-toe with them. So in essence, he tries to sort of get out of the radar and heading to Galilee is definitely the place for that. Galilee was in essence synonymous with knowing with people who were in essence ill-educated. They were kind of this sort of simpleton was the idea. They were quick to be superstitious and their manner of speech was so slurring of the language. I might say to some, not probably anyone in this room, but maybe in those who live off of the Queen's English, that the American might have that kind of mindset. You go, oh, look what they, how they slaughter our language. It was so bad that of the 365 synagogues in Jerusalem, nobody from Galilee was allowed to do the benediction because they said that the, what they did to the language was so bad it would be blasphemous for them even to pray a blessing over the congregation. That gives you an idea of what the idea of a Galilean is. But they were still Jewish. So Jesus, in essence, heads to obscurity. 
adds to little snoring. Some place that we may have heard of in England, but some place that, you know, really no one's going to know. That's the idea. But what we read in verse 4 opens this thing wide open, and it says, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, it doesn't say he just chose to go. It doesn't just say he happened surreptitiously to go. But what it does tell us is that Jesus had an appointment ultimately to get to this place, Samaria. And understand for us, we just kind of read it. It's kind of like, well, you know, Jesus was trying to take the Jubilee line and there was someone that kind of clogged that up. So Jesus went and then took the Northern line to get where he was going because we don't actually get in, in essence the depth. So what is so big about Samaria that makes this a big deal? Well, let me give you a little bit of background, if you will. But for what it's worth, I think it's interesting that when Jesus tells them in Acts 1.8 that they will be, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they'll be witnesses, literally evidence, by the way. He says, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's, in essence, the route Jesus is taking at this moment, if you will. Now, in 930 BC, the duplicitive-hearted Solomon bequeaths the throne to his son Rehoboam. And shortly thereafter, the horrible crop of Solomon's double-hearted sowing begins to harvest. It's a civil war. Of the 12 tribes, 10 claim the north and call themselves Israel. Two of the tribes, that's Benjamin and Judah, claim the south and call themselves Judah, for which we get the term Jew today. In the balance, the Levites, those that are going to be more renegade, are going to find themselves actually renegade to their culture, are going to find themselves in the south where Jerusalem and the temple are. In the north, from that point on, the first king was a king named Jeroboam. That's with a J, but you say it kind of like a Y in Hebrew. Now, Jeroboam, by the way, recognizes that three times a year, the able-bodied men have to go to Jerusalem to worship, to make for these feasts for that of Pesach or Passover, for that of Shavuot or that of Pentecost and that of Sukkot or Tabernacles at the end of the harvest. And he knows that if that happens, the guys that are in the north, these 10 tribes are probably going to bail on him. So what does he do? He says, we need to go and make things a little more convenient. So let's set up temples for them to go to here so they don't go down to Jerusalem, smell the incense, see the stained glass and go, oh, I missed this. I'm moving down south. Unfortunately, he does it much like Aaron in the wilderness where they build golden calves. One in Bethel, and then one north in the northernmost part in the area of Dan. And the people fall for it. No sin is mentioned more in all of Scripture than the sin of Jeroboam, Yeroboam. Because it was not one of just doing something stupid. It was not just one of following a lust, though those things are bad and wrong. It was trading God in for another, and no sin is more serious to God. Now, there are 19 horrible kings in that north. Forgive me for the, the lesson, but it gets us into our understanding of this. Of the 19 of them, the sixth of those is a guy named Omri. It basically goes to this. This guy has a son that's murdered by this guy, who has a son who's murdered by this guy, who commits suicide, and then this guy steps up in its place, who is a commander. That guy's name is Omri, to give you an idea. That's the sixth king in 58 years. Now, that's weird for us because we've had the same queen, Oh, it seems like almost twice that long. It really hasn't been, but you know, let's just be honest. Now, he's a horrible and a wicked man, but he recognizes that there's no capital. So he takes this hill that he buys from a guy, not named Shemar, but close. Shemer. Shemer, by the way, in the simplest sense, actually is two things. It means to guard, but Shemer 
also means a seriously intoxicating drink. The closest thing we might have is if you've ever heard of Everclear. You know, that kind of stuff that basically nobody drinks for any reason other than to basically give themselves a temporary lobotomy. That's kind of the idea here. Well, I was Shemer. Well, anyways, with all of that said, he buys this hill from the guy and he names the place then Shemeria. In other words, Shemeria, it means, in essence, the guard tower. So, and he makes that the capital of the northern kingdom. That's the area of Samaria, the capital of those 10 northern tribes. Now, I remind you, there were 19 kings ultimately, and ultimately by roughly 721, 722 BC, what we're going to find is Nebuchadnezzar III and his son, by the way, Sachadon, are going to go and surround the city, take it captive, and as they take it captive, and I'm reading to you now to give you an idea, 2 Kings chapter 17, again, a few miles northwest of Shechem is this oblong steep hill, roughly about 1,400 feet above sea level, or if you will, it's 328 meters above sea level. And it's the only city made by those kings, by the way, uh, with what it's worth. But it says in 2 Kings 17, verse 22, that the children of Israel walked in the sins of Jeroboam. Remember that guy? First king, made the gold calves. Everyone traded God for that. And it says, they did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel. Remember, that's the northern ten tribes out of his sight. As he said by his servants, the prophets, so Israel was carried away from, the, to their, from their own land to Assyria. Assyria today, does anyone know where Assyria is today? That's excellent, yeah. Actually, it's Iraq, Iran. Assyria, uh, in essence, is Iraq, and Babylon is Iran, in loose paraphrase is the idea. But yes, you're right. Good job. Well, so they were carried away, and it says this in verse 24 of chapter 17. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, again, that's Iran, and from Sepharvayim, in essence, basically all of the Middle East, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in their cities. Now, here's the beginning of this. Because the people had bailed on God, God then says, God is not punishing them by sending somebody. In the simplest sense, he's been protecting them. All he has to do is say, you want to run out from my protection? Well, then good luck fighting it yourself. So he pulls his hands back, and boy, I tell you, at this point, Iraq is waiting. And so they jump into the situation, and they yank out most of the people. As a matter of fact, I think I even have a number here. There is an inscription that actually says, I think it's 27,290 people were deported out of that capital city alone. And as they were moved out, he took people from everywhere else in the Middle East and stuck them in there as well. So you've got a few of the Jewish people that were there from Israel. Then you've got all these other people in there. And now what you have is basically San Francisco. You've got a place where everybody is kind of there and they're intermingling. But that's not the big issue to God. God is really not kind of going, you know, I'm not into interracial relationships. That is not the situation because he tells us what happens next. It says, and so it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Of course not. They didn't even seem to want to know him. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them and killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you've removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know, and don't miss this word, the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and indeed they're killing them because they don't know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded them, saying, Well, then send then one of the priests whom you've brought from here. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Now, this is what we get. You have this place where these, these, uh, 
the, the people of Iraq have come in, and Nebuchadnezzar III, they've come in, they've taken these people, they've yanked them all out, and then they've brought in people from everywhere else, and lions are starting to eat them. So they look and they go, you know what the problem is? No, no, please, please, please hear me in this. Every other religion other than Judaism, than Judeo-Christian, well, actually, be honest, other than Christianity, because often Judaism still follows this mindset, is about worshiping God and a very different result than ours. A quick point. Once, about 10, 15 years ago, I had the privilege of being able to go to Calcutta. And going to Calcutta was a, was a beautiful and a unique experience for me. We had, I brought six people with me, and we had gone to take a look at some of the ministry, specifically a young man in the north who was a militant, a Hindu militant. Uh, did you know there were such things? Uh, and he had been raising up people to kill Christians. And then one day he encounters Jesus and he gives him his life to Christ and now is spending his life running from the very people he trained to kill Christians because he happens to be one himself. And then we land in Kolkata and as we do, the, one of the first sights I see in our town is an old man roughly in his 90s. I mean, he is as old as the hills and he's naked and he's rolling down a hill. And there are pieces of bone and broken glass and so forth on this hill. And I'm looking at this. Now, I'm trying not to be culturally insensitive. And you, you know, if I were just a drummer, I might just go like this kind of thing happened all the time around here. But you know, you want to be a little more tactful. And I'm like, excuse me, but what is this man doing? And, and is, is this weird for you? And he says, oh no, this happens all the time. You see, Calcutta is dedicated to the god Kali, who was a god of destruction. And... He is doing this to keep Kali away. And so I ask our, the person, who, by the way, isn't a Christian, who is walking me out, he happens to be a uh, Hindu cleric. And he is, and I'm asking him, so let me ask you, of the 300 million gods that you have, how many of them do you worship to kind of, in essence, keep away? He goes, well, all of them, don't you? And it occurred to me how the mindset of doing something to keep your God away from you is so foreign to a Christian. So I don't worship God to keep him away. I worship God not even to draw him near. He's already near. I worship him because he loves me and because he's good. Do you know that, God? And the reason I say that is the mindset of the Middle East here is exactly that. They're getting eaten by lions. And if we could teach them the rituals, if they could just do the thing right well, then we could get that God away off our backs is the idea. And it does seem to work, by the way. But I mean, is that why you come to church? It'll give you a better week? God owes you? Or because God actually has a plan for you and part of it is actually being in fellowship. Because, you know, if we really did church the way God intended, we'd look at church differently and we'd shop churches different, if you will. Because we'd look at a place where we could be the most blessed but also the greatest blessing where we could be available to serve. Well, hear me in this. So by the time that Jesus is setting foot on the, on the planet here, Samaritan became not just mixed race as far as bloodline, but mixed race spiritually. You did the rituals, but you did them to keep God away. And the Jews took that great offense. By the way, to this day, the Samaritans still sit on Mount Gerizim. 
Now, when, when Jerusalem, I'm sorry, when Israel, the whole nation, had come into the promised land, God had them stand on two mountains. One was called Mount Ibel, one was called Mount, Mount Gerizim, and in between was a place called Shechem. And there was a place where they said, if God says, if you're willing to love me and do what I say, I'm going to bless you. In the field, when you lie down, when you get up in the city, in your, I'll bless your kneading bowl, I'll bless everything. Just love me and follow me. On the other side, it says, if you don't want to do that, don't expect any of that to be blessed because that all comes from me. And in between was a place called the Valley of Decision, a place called Shechem. By the way, that plays into this, because Shechem, by Jesus' day, variates in his language. You're familiar with that one a lot of places, and it becomes a place called Sechar, and that's the place where they're at. The place where you stood in between these two places and said, do I really want to follow God and love him, or do I really just want to do my own thing? Because that's where this place is. Now, consider that. So when they looked at a Samaritan, let me give you an idea. There's only three places where a Samaritan is listed outside of this. The first, by the way, is in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 10, where he gives us the parable of the good Samaritan. Now, we don't have anything like that. I mean, we, the best thing we might have is to say, like, the good guy that came from ISIS, except that's an affiliation more than just a place. And for that, that would be, in other words, he would be the greatest underdog, the least likely hero of all would be a Samaritan because they threw rocks at each other. In chapter 17 of Luke, Jesus cleanses 10 lepers and one of them, only one comes back to thank him. 10 people transformed and only one comes back and he happens to be a Samaritan. And it tells us in John chapter 8, in the book we're reading by chapter 8, they say this, the religious leaders, as they're trying to trash talk Jesus, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I mean, that's cutting below the belt. To call someone a Samaritan was trash talking. We don't even have anything like that here, which is probably a really good thing. So let me get this, let me make this clear. You have Jerusalem here, you have Galilee up here, and this area in between is the area of Samaria. And what the Jewish man would do to stay clean is he would go from here, cross the the Jordan River, go to where what we would say is Jordan today. He would walk around it this way, and they would come this way back into Jerusalem because he would never go through Samaria. Because if he did, he was considering himself defiled because of the way that they viewed them. Interesting, by the way, Jesus will go through this, this area again. And when he does, in Luke chapter 9, his disciples recognize, the, the Samaritans are like, you're going to worship? And they're like, well, we're not going to let you through our area like a turf war. And the disciples are like, do you want us to call fire down on them? That gives you an idea of even the disciples' mindset of the Samaritan. So you can understand why Jesus has to send them away on an errand. Because he really has an appointment with this girl. And he actually, to be honest, he doesn't want his own people in the way. And I wonder how many times God sends us off on some silly little errand so that God can actually do what he really wants to do because we might get in the way of it. So get this, and again, forgive me, but I'm setting this scene because then it really picks up, obviously. Jesus is walking through no man's territory. Some of us in here, that might be like walking through Hackney or up in Tottenham, if you will. You know, some of us then might actually be walking through Luton. But you get the idea, there are certain places where you know you're not liked, and, but you, do you know those kind of places where you know someone doesn't like you because they're convinced you don't like them first? I mean, that's kind of secondary school stuff, isn't it? Some people just don't like you because they are convinced you just don't like them. And when you actually say, hey, how's it going? They kind of fall over. They're like, what? Why are you talking to me? 
Well, that's kind of the situation here. And Jesus is walking through an area no decent Jew walks through. And what's even funnier is God made really clear he's walking there with his disciples. Disciples, by the way, means students. Mathitikos, all it means is students. So Jesus, the school of Jesus is a mobile school and they're following Jesus. And imagine they're going, are you sure we should be going through this area, Jesus? Come on, let's be honest. This is a little weird for, we're good Jewish guys. Why are you walking us through here? And then Jesus goes, now go to the store and go get us some food. Now imagine a bunch of Jewish guys heading into a Samaritan city to go get food. How uncomfortable would that be? We had a little barbecue the day after the 4th of July, and we wanted to call it the No Hard Feelings Barbecue because, you know, it's the whole American thing. But, I mean, imagine what it would be like 200 years ago, you know, a bunch of people that were actually now Americans, if you will, or claiming to be Americans, and then coming back and walking through England. It would be a weird feeling. Now, a couple hundred years tends to make things a little bit more mellow, but you get the idea. Now, it tells us in verse 5, he came to a city which is called Sichar. Again, would you say Sichar? which is a pot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. By the way, Joseph, I remind you, dies in Egypt, and he wants his bones carried to be buried where his father had built this well. This is the place, by the way, where the bones of Joseph, the one, if you will, betrayed by his own brothers, but ultimately rises up to redeem his whole family. First the Gentile, and then his family. It's the whole story of Jesus right there. This well, by the way, three meters wide, that's roughly 10 meters you know, from one side to the other, and roughly 35 meters deep, or if you will, about 11 stories deep. That's a deep well. So this is an important one. Now, fork between Nablus and, and Sithopolis, by the way, for what it's worth today. And it tells us this. Now we get our characters. Jesus has sent his boys to get food, And it tells us in verse 6, now Jacob's wall was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied, literally from journey, because his is italics to help us understand, sat by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jewish clock starts at 6 a.m. There are three times of prayer, the third, the sixth, and the ninth hour. Those times, by the way, they're called shacharit, shacharit, mincha, and ma'ariv. And the first time in that third hour, you're praying, God, give. At noon, midday, you're praying, God, speak. And then at 3 p.m., you're praying, God, save. Very important because I challenge you, if you knew even that, when you start to read where God makes special note of things, like what hour? You get the idea, it makes perfect sense. For instance, does anyone know in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon those 120 praying, what time it was? He says, we are not drunk as you suppose because it is only the third hour. The third hour, mind you, 9 a.m. if you will. We were praying, God give, and God gave. Jesus, we read, hangs on the cross for three hours. You aware of that, right? The hours, by the way, it becomes, or at least we tell, we're told it becomes dark between the sixth and the ninth hour. The sixth hour, we are there, it's mincha, and we're praying, God, speak. And Jesus begins to speak from the cross. At the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., 15 o'clock, if you will, he gives up his spirit and says, unto your hand I commit my spirit, and he dies as we're praying, God, save. Makes sense, doesn't it? In the book of Acts chapter 10, Side note, but it's kind of fun. In Acts chapter 10, there is a guy named Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion, and he is praying. And as he's praying, an angel comes and speaks to him and says, you go call for Peter. It's the ninth hour. He's praying, God save. 
Peter, on the other hand, it's a different time of the day, and he's actually going up on the housetop to pray, and he gets into a trance. God drops down the bug and beast buffet and says, what I called clean, don't you call common. And then he's going to go and do this. Well, what's he praying? It's the, well, it's the sixth hour. He's praying God speak, and God speaks. And you realize God knows what he's doing. Now, back in our text here, it's sixth hour. The Jewish men are praying, God, speak. And as they were, that's noon. It's the hottest time of the day unless you're in England. I've learned that's roughly 4 p.m. here for whatever reason. And uh, with that, we read that Jesus is there. When we read a woman from Samaria comes to draw water. And he said to her, give me a drink. Now, don't miss this. Ladies, if you had to go to a place to go and carry water in a stone jar that's going to basically weigh about a third of your body weight, what time of the day do you go to do that? I'd go as early in the morning as possible. Well, as early as I get up. But, I mean, you get the idea. Because it's cooler during that time. So who gets up at noon to do this? Well, it paints certain images, doesn't it? On one side, you get the girl who got up because she's got a hangover. On another side, you got a girl who maybe just got up because she just didn't want to be there when the other girls were there. And when you look at the story of this gal, it makes perfect sense. Either one of them is a possible option, a feasible option. But, but don't miss this for a moment. This particular well is outside the city, and it was a place that Jacob bought from people who weren't Israelites. They were, from, they were Amorites. Amorites and he knew that he wanted to give it to his son, that he was going to declare the firstborn, even though he was 11th of 12. That boy would be buried there 400 plus years later. And they're sitting at that same place here. And the well was a place that was the ladies' room of the day. You know, kind of that meeting in the ladies' room. You know, I need to go to the restroom. And you do too. Oh, there they go. It was the place where you found a husband. Jacob would do that with Rachel. By the way, Moses would do that. If you remember, it was Pura. Isaac, by the way, would be, his wife would be found there at the well. It was a place, in essence, it was the uh, iMatch.com kind of place, if you will. It was like thewell.com. You know. You know, and in those days, that would make a little bit of sense. You wanted to make sure you got a girl that could carry the water. You want to make sure there was a girl just kind of dragging this thing. You're like, mm, we might. that's probably not going to be the one. Unless you like being thirsty. And since we've gone through that, that's not so good. But what we realize is that what we read about Jesus is it's hot outside. He's weary from his journey. And might I say, they have that in common. Jesus, if you will, is resting because he's weary by a well. He's tired because of the road he's been walking. And she shows up and so is she. The life she's been living right now, she's weary from her journey too. Now, I'll remind you, the moment your body loses 1% of your body water, contained body water, you start to lose that strength and that vigor that you would have otherwise. You become weary. You become weary before you become thirsty because something vital is missing. In Jesus' case, it's literal, it's physical, because he's clearly been walking, he's tired, he needs a drink. His body's been engaging now that thirst mechanism, saying, you need to get some water in you. But this woman's been thirsty for a long, long time. So, he turns to her and says, and it sounds like it's just a command, but it is actually the language of the day. It is to this day, by the way, in much of the Middle East. We might say it this way, may I have a drink, please? 
He sent his disciples away to go and buy food. Verse 9, the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now notice, she is going to grow in her understanding of Jesus. It starts with this. You're a Jew. That's clear because the Samaritans wore, in essence, very natural colors. The Jews often very much wore white with blue tassels on the end of everything, showing their allegiance to the commandments and their connection to heaven. So even the way they dressed was pretty obviously different. And she looks and he goes, can we have a drink, please? And she looks and she goes, "Are are are you talking to me? That's kind of the idea here. She's a bit blown away. Verse 10, Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that says to you, give, it, give me a drink? You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now her response moves from Jew to sir. Do you notice that? Now she's speaking in a term of respect. At first, wait a minute, you hate me. Why would you talk to me, Jew? Now she looks and she's like, sir. He go, and, and now understand, Jesus is like, may I have a drink, please? Now obviously he's not there with a bucket she comes up with her thing. She's ready to do so. She's like, may I have a drink, please? And, and, and she then, I'm like, why, why in the world would you speak to me? And he goes, you know, the funny part about this is, when I'm asking you in a very temporary way, if you would ask me, we would deal with a much deeper thirst here. She goes, sir, um, you have nothing to draw with. How exactly do you think you're going to get this water? But notice her question is, Where? Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than Jacob? I mean, he gave us this well. We drank from him himself, him and his livestock. Are you greater than that guy? He's the one who dug this well. Now, don't miss this. Now, living water, we have this tendency as Christians to turn terms into such inviolably sacrosanct terms that we kind of forget that they actually have just a simple purpose or meaning to them, and living water is one of them. There's only two kinds of water in the world, running and not, to be honest. I mean, water that's still and stagnant, that's where we grow frogs for our next door cats to eat them all. I'm not bitter. But, you know, and it grows pond scum and all of those things, the kind of things you really don't want to drink. Now, on the other side of it, running water has a tendency, on the other hand, to be much cleaner. You're probably aware of the fact water itself is actually quite thirsty, and it drinks up the minerals of the rocks it runs upon, and a lot of those minerals are what fortify us. It's part of the cool thing about the way God invented water. Now, running water is simply living water. From the perspective of a woman in those days, it isn't like Jesus is like, now listen, honey, I'm going to introduce a new term to you, and you're going to need to make sure that you build a church with that name on it. Living water just meant running water. Now, when you have a well and you dig it deep, understand you, you find water down there. Often that's a water table, so that's stagnant water, but it's deep enough that it hasn't had a chance to really get nasty. Now, on the other side of that, there are water tables that are like underground currents underneath the ground. Normally, those are quite deep, much like this. Now, understand, if you need water, sooner or later, you'll drink pond scum if, it means, if, if you're that thirsty. But man, in a moment like that, there's a difference between that and a nice cold glass of fresh water. Very, very different. And I, and I realize something is I'm looking at this from the perspective of wanting to be like Jesus. And I realize this guy, this guy knows already all of this. Jesus, God in the flesh, is looking at this girl, and he has a heart to totally overcome the thing that is killing her inside. And while that's happening, she's come 
completely unaware of this event. She shows up in this thing, not knowing that. But imagine her showing up at this well and going, are you kidding me? A guy's here? And then saying, are you kidding me? He's a Jew? Oh, are you kidding me? What kind of place is this? I'm going to show up here. I, I came at noon because I didn't want to get berated. And now there's a Jew that's going to yell at me? Imagine all of that. And it's like, okay, at this point, I just want to get my water and get out of here. And he starts a conversation with her. And I wonder when was the last time she had any conversation at this well. And here he is speaking to her. It's like, wouldn't you really love that living water? That fresh is the idea here of that. And I, I wonder when I present Jesus to people, am I presenting something that's like, you know, there's that great pond where I still go to because it's that good old religion, you know, and people know oh, that good old thing. Or is there a freshness in my walk with the Lord so that when people see there's a difference, you know, between, okay, I drank, I'm okay, and okay, I'm refreshed. Is there a refreshment that I'm presenting? Because Jesus is, even though he's weary, he goes, honey, if you would have asked, and you would have found living water. And she looks and goes, living water? You can't even get down to this water. Are you really greater than Jacob? And now she starts to make this discovery as Jesus sets it on her and he goes, now look it. There are two thirsts and you need to recognize that. Whoever drinks of this water is going to thirst again. Everything built on this world is going to be temporary. There's a problem. We know that. These bodies had a birthday and these bodies will have a day that we can put at the end of the tombstone. And, and, then, and I'm not trying to be gross or morose. I'm just trying to be honest. This physical shell isn't built for eternity. And by the way, the older I get, Hallelujah, the more I'm thankful. But on the other side, the inside of me, the part that's being renewed daily, and even then some, I realize that part on the other side of it doesn't decay like this, isn't subject to the laws of entropy, and doesn't decay and erode like the things here, because everything on earth is temporary. And because when your body craves it, and that's the, your physical body, it's going to be something that's going to go over and over and over again. And, she's, and he says to her, look at no matter how many times you come and drink, and no matter how much you drink right now, you're going to come back. Because it is a constant need. But whoever drinks of the water, I shall give. Well, they'll never have to thirst again. But the water that I give him, notice it's the water that I give him, will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The term, by the way, for, uh, that we see here for springing up is the term, by the way, alomai. And alomai, by the way, means to gush or erupt like a geyser. And, and, and please hear me in this. Jesus is speaking to this woman and, and, and she's there and she really knows she needs to get some water and that's all she came there for. And he's going to meet her at the most important, essential place in her entire life. But she's going, where? Where do I get this? Now remember in chapter three, it was Nicodemus. And in Nicodemus's case, his whole thing was how? What religion does is it gets, give me the how. And isn't that exactly what the Samaritans were doing? They got the rituals. They got the how. But it really wasn't the where. On the other side of it, this woman, she is, her, her soul is aching. And because her soul is aching, she's going, where, where do I go for this? You know, the crazy part is, every place this girl goes, she's not welcome. She goes to that, that, uh, that well, and we're going to see She's a castaway there. She's a Samaritan, so she's a castaway among the Jewish people. Imagine her trying to show up in Jerusalem at the temple. They'd be like, what are you doing here? Every place that she's wanted to go that's aware is a place she feels unwelcome. But see, the beautiful part about it is when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, he says, the how is the Holy Spirit. 
He's the one who's got to do this. The where? Jesus says, I'm the where. Jesus speaking. Where you're looking is where you're looking right now. That's what you're looking for. So she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor have to come here to draw. Notice two things. One is I'm so tired of this thirst. And the second, I would love to not have to come back to this place and deal with the ridicule and all of that, the shame. Jesus goes, you want to deal with the shame? Then let's deal with the shame. You want to deal with the thirst? Let's deal with the thirst. Let's go right at the core. And he says, all right, now go call your husband and come back. And he gives her a chance here, by the way, to lie. He also gives her a chance to come clean. And she does. Amidst all of these religious leaders, in many cases, that have actually would have lied at a moment like this. By the way, the average Pharisee, according to Roman annals, was divorced and remarried 13 times. They could just say, if you burn their toast, or if you somehow, and actually it says, if you do anything that displeases them, including the way you look, it means you wake up and you look over and it's like, ah, we're done. How rough is that? And Jesus looks and goes, go call your husband. And she goes, I don't have a husband. Jesus goes, well said. Did you notice that he commends her honesty? Did you notice that? He says, you've, you've well said. Thank you for being honest when you said you have no husband. Well, I mean, I just so you know I already knew the answer. Not only do you not have a husband, you've had five. And the guy that you're living with now, he's not your husband either. Now, you spoke truth. Imagine trying to talk to any person in this culture and get that kind of honesty. Let's face it, we would rather die quietly than share the truth and get help. In this case, Jesus looks and he goes, wow. Now, let me ask you, for a woman who is not legally able to divorce, how does she lose five husbands? There's only two options. They've died or they've divorced her. Neither one's very cool. But let's face it, after five, I wouldn't marry the girl, would you? If they all died? And if they all divorced her, I think I'd be a little nervous about that too, wouldn't you? It's five different guys, one way or another, started a, till death do we part. And they parted somewhere. But notice she's still thirsty. If she wasn't thirsty after all that, she wouldn't be living with a guy right now. But because she's living with a guy, she's living with a guy, and at this point, she'll take anything. Because inside her is a thirst. She's lonely. Because God created you for companionship, but first and foremost for him. Because the one thing that The only thing that quenches permanently is him. And we've been running to the wells of all kinds of things, trying to satiate a thirst, quench a thirst, that at best does for a brief moment. And we get distracted by a romance, and we get distracted, we run into some form of drug, or we run into whatever the thing is, and we club, and we chase this, and we amass this, and we get a name for ourselves, and we become powerful, and we get a title, and we get, and in the end of it all, whatever the hill is we climb, we get to the top of the hill, and you're like, how can I be so thirsty? I have everything the world said quenches this, and I'm worse than I was before.
Jesus looks at her and he says, you really, you really want that quenched? Well, then you're going to have to be honest with me. And she's like, I've been trying. And look at, nowhere in it does he criticize her. Nowhere in it does he lay this stuff out and go, well, let me tell you why these guys left or let me tell you why these guys died or any of that. He just looks, he looks at a girl and what he's seeing is a broken heart that is somehow still starving for this thing that she can't seem to find. And I remind you again, Proverbs 27, 7 tells us that the, the satisfied soul even loathes the honeycomb, but the hungry soul, even every bitter thing is sweet. You get hungry enough, you'll eat your sock. Your shoe looks good. We just walked by a place a couple days ago. I did. We and the Lord was at that time. Uh, and it was a sign. It was a lotion place. And I'm like, oh, I've never had lotion food. And on the front of it, there's like four things it says. And one's like papaya salad. And I'm like, I've had that before. And it's like fried bugs and eggs. Now, if you know me, I'm the kind of guy that I'm like, I got to try that. And I'm like checking with guys. And you can learn a lot about a guy that's like, <laughs> I'm gone that day. We haven't said what day it is. I'm surely gone that day. You know, but the, and the reason I say that is you get hungry enough. It doesn't matter who you are. You'll eat it with me. Now I'm looking around. I don't see anyone where you're like starting to salivate at the thought of that. But what do I know? The idea of it is, is that internally that hunger, that thirst inside of us, the same thing happens in the beginning. Remember when that list was, they've got to be not only a Christian, but they've got to be somebody that Billy Graham writes about. You know, they got to be somebody that in the end of it all, it's like people are coming to Christ. Every, the guy sneezes and people give their life to Christ. And I just need somebody when they pray, heaven's open and the gold plate drops on their head and the angels sing. And then it's like, and I want somebody that's a leader in the church and they are committed and they've been walking with Christ. And, you know, and then as you kind of get older, you kind of get hungrier and you try this and you try that. And in the end of it all, you kind of go, I just need somebody breathing, you know, and, and God's like, what happened? It's like, you got thirsty. But you kept going to the wrong place. And the more you keep going to the wrong place, the more you get thirsty. It's like my belly's full, but I'm full of salt water and I'm still so thirsty. And understand as we're almost here at the close of this, the theology and religious observances, they can't quench it. They're like plastic food. Have you ever seen it? It's like you ever walk into a place and you're like, oh, that pear looks great. And then you grab and you're like, whoa, that's plastic. Well, understand, without the real thing, it's nothing. And it t- t- Jesus tells the religious leaders in John 5, 39, he says, look, you search the scriptures, thinking by them you possess eternal life, but they're the ones that testify of me. Just knowing scripture isn't anything if it doesn't get you to Jesus. God says in Isaiah 29 that the people draw near to me with their mouths, they honor me with their lips, but they've removed their hearts so far from me. And God's like, I'm not looking for their mouths, I'm looking for their hearts. He's like, look, at, I want a relationship, not just a ritual. And that's been the problem anyways, hasn't it been, with the Samaritans? Now, God has always wanted the same. Deuteronomy 6, he says, just know this. It's the one time that God says, now, will you please hear me? Shema, hear me. By the way, you're probably familiar, Shema and Shema are very similar because the idea to guard something comes from genuinely listening. And the idea here is, is like, I was like, would you listen? This is what I really want. Will you just love me? Will your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Please, that's the one thing. Deuteronomy 11, 1. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord will circumcise the heart of you and your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul that you would live. Joshua 23:11 Therefore be careful to take heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Psalm 31 verse 23 Oh love the Lord all you saints. And then when they ask Jesus what's the most important commandment, whether in Matthew 22, Mark chapter 12 or Luke 10 he says the same thing. 
Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He goes, have you missed this? And all of your rituals and routines and all of this stuff and all of the regalia, you've got all of this stuff. And then by this point, and remember, by the time we get to the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to the one church that actually looks like they're doing it right. And that's the Ephesian church. He says, in the simplest sense, you can smell a phony. You can see a false prophet and you can take it to scripture and you go, now look at that guy. He's a, he's clearly a, he goes, but in all of the stuff you do, please don't miss this. He goes, I have this against you. You've left your first love. He goes, man, you're doing all the right things, but you're dead right. Dead right. He goes, yeah, you look so good on the outside. He goes, but I miss you. You know, I mean, and you know how to report in and go, I've had a good quiet time today. It was an hour long. I've read two chapters in Isaiah. I've written a poem about what I've read. I've done some original language search on it. I read, I prayed through my list. God's like, but I miss you because I love you and I, I don't want you to tick boxes with me. I want you to, I want everything, God speaking, I want everything that we do to be a I get to, not I have to. And Jesus is speaking to a woman who understands that. She just doesn't realize God's the one speaking. He's like, man, you've been trying so hard. And as far as you look back, it's all failure. And imagine... God did a house call, or if you will, a well call at a place where a woman meets her future husband, a place where Jesus shows up there for a woman that everyone else would have casted away because nobody, she wouldn't have gone anywhere. She wasn't welcome. She says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. She went from Jew to sir to it sounds like you seem to know what you're talking about as far as God's concerned. And notice in verse 20, she says, you know, there is something I've been aching about. Worship. I mean, you Jews, you tell us that we have to do it in Jerusalem. She's not even welcome there. She goes, I know what that's like. I get that every day here at the well. Why do I want to go there for that? And all I'm trying to do is worship. The word for worship, by the way, in, in, shecha is the word in the Hebrew. It literally means to prostrate yourself, throw yourself down. But the word in the, Hebrew, in the Greek, beautiful word, proskuneho. Pros means towards, like prosthetic. Kaneo means to kiss like a dog does a master's hand. I mean, understand the Greek term for worship is the term meaning to turn towards and kiss. It's an intimate thing. She goes, you know, if you really are God's spokesman, can you clear this up with me? Because it seems to me that what you've required as a Jew, I'm not even welcome to. And he says, you know what? It's not going to be an issue of Jerusalem or this hill. To this day, in Mount Gerizim, by the way, they still slaughter lambs on Passover there. The Samaritans are still there. Because really, the bottom line is, what you're looking for is me. Now listen, If anyone knows the idea of loving someone and having heartbreak, it's going to be God. If anyone knows the idea of actually committing themselves to someone and then having them bail on him, it's got to be God. And Jesus committing himself to all of his disciples, even handing them the cup of a covenant, and then just within an hour or two later, they're going to find themselves all running as Jesus is arrested. He understands this. He understands what it's like to be weary from this. 
where all he did is dump love on people that in essence never requited it in return. And yet because God is love, he never runs out. And he would do what this woman couldn't do, and that is that he would take her sins upon himself. He would take her shame upon himself and yours and mine. And he would hang on a cross to make sure it was properly punished. And when he died on the cross, it was over, finished, tetelestai. But when he would rise again, he would offer new life. Understand, you can't have a resurrection without a death. And we want all of the resurrection power. We, want, we don't want to die before we get there. And the moment I lay that old man down, I realize he's a whole new person and the well is Jesus. Now, as we go to prayer, and we've already gone a bit late, We'll take up this and the rest of this text next week, but I want you to recognize maybe today the Lord's speaking to you about your thirst. You've been in enough relationships to know they don't satisfy like you want, and maybe you keep blaming it on the other person, or worse, you blame yourself. You go, you know, I don't know, maybe it's me. I don't know, I keep picking the wrong person, but somewhere in all of it, I come into this thing. The problem is both people come in with thirsty, so we all come in with straws to suck each other, and we wonder why we're not satisfied. Because the only one that can satisfy that thirst inside of you is the Lord. He built that hole only big enough, so big that only he can fill it. But understand, that woman went to that well because she was just hungry for something. and She had no idea that God was going to meet her deeper. Now, I don't know what you came here today expecting. Maybe there's a problem in your life right now when you just came and going, God, could you just deal with this? You know, I'm lonely. I'm confused. I really have to make this life-saving choice. Life is overwhelming me. I feel like I just got run over by whatever is going on in my life. And you came here because you just wanted off your back. But the Lord wanted to meet you deeper than that. He wanted to do more than just pull you out of the foxhole of your moment. He wanted to tell you that I want to meet you at the deepest, most vulnerable, and most frightened place inside of you. The place you wouldn't let anyone know. In all honesty, you won't even let yourself know the depth of that thirst. Because if you did... You'd be left quivering. But I remind you, the thirst says that something critical and crucial in your life is missing. And if you've never said yes to Jesus, I want to give you that chance to do so. But if you have said yes to Jesus, let me ask you, are you more familiar today with the broken cisterns or from the living well? You came here today, you should expect to hear that. Because today, we want to, I, want, I want to challenge you as a Christian to recommit. Now, those of you who come regularly, you know I don't do that every week, but it just seems right for where we're at in our text. But when when we recommit, we're not just going, God, I just quench this. Quench this craving inside of me. What we're actually asking is, God, I want to give you permission then to rip out those other cisterns, those foolish things I'm running to. And and if that's a bad relationship or a stupid place or a habit I've formed or something I'm doing in private that no one else should know about, but I'm doing regularly or whatever it is, and we give God permission to search and seize, to exhume and remove, to get in there and yank it out. Now, you know what that means. God's going to take you seriously. So understand, when we're recommitting today, we're giving God permission to, in essence, to not just muck with our life, but completely blast it and start over if he needs to. Are you willing to do that? Because I am. Because I am tired of just trying to walk this thing without him being everything. And I don't want any thirst here. I want to be able to sit at the well only weary by the journey because of the time it took me to walk here. 
but my soul overflowing. Would you pray with me? God, here we are today. And we are sitting in Sichar at a well that Jacob gave to his son who was completely overlooked until he became the savior of his whole family. So instead he wound up going first to Egypt to go and be a, a rescuer there. A place that would have been considered enmity with Israel. And in that same way, Jesus has gone to a place at this moment I recognize a community that would have been cast away from the Jewish community. And a woman which have been considered lesser than a man. So cast away from the men, but a woman whose own history would have her cast away even from the women that would have been cast away from the men that would have been as a community cast away from the Jews. She would have been the lowest of the lowest of the low and you went and you didn't just give her steps to climb but rather you met her at her weariness. As you would say, come, even though we be labored and heavy laden, in other words, burdened to where we can't even really walk and exhausted from trying and yet in all of that, if we would come to you, you would give us rest. And this woman comes with two thirsts. And by the time we're done, I know, Lord, she's going to drop her bucket and run off, which means that the one thirst she really wanted quenched got met. And here in this room, I start with the believers, those who today you know that you've said yes to Jesus, but you've been wandering. You've been playing around. You're trying to figure out how to still sort of smack down a bit of the salt water and the living at the same time and figure out how much of each you need to sort of exist but not thrive. So you live in this spiritually semi-dehydrated state where nothing functions great, but it relatively functions and so you keep going. But today you recognize that God wants more. He wants your love not just a ritual, not just a box to tick, but life together. And if that's you today, as I stand here to recommit my life to the Lord, I challenge you to do the same and pray this prayer with me right now. God, I've given my life to you and you know it and you've taken me seriously. But I confess to you, I want to give you everything. And so I give you permission to rip out, to dig up, to pull out, to snatch up, to clean out, to drive out anything and everything that somehow becomes competition to you, that is somehow trying to stop the well that is somehow trying to pour dirt in the well, that is somehow trying to put a cap on this thing, this living fount that you want me to be. And I tell you today, as fearful as I could be about what you may have to do to do that, I want to give you absolute permission because in faith, I just know that you never use excessive force, but you'll do what is necessary. And so I give you permission 
to drive out of my life anything and everything that somehow interferes with that. That you would be the Lord of all and that I would be the font you call me to be so that the thirsty souls around me would be able to come and receive that same living water. I believe you died for me on the cross, paying for all my sin, and I believe you rose again, offering me a new life. And so I lay the old life down for the one you have on the other side. Be now that Lord you deserve to be in my life. Jesus, in your name. If you want to pray that prayer with me today, just give me that confident, Amen. God, if there be anyone here in this room who has yet to say yes to you, they're not sure if they've said yes or they know they haven't. Today they know that this needs to be the, 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 the time where they say, all right, from this day forward, my life is yours. Pray this prayer with me. God, I'm a sinner and I stand before you guilty in my own merit, but I believe that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me and raise again to give me new life. And so I say yes to that offer. Pay my bill, but do more than just make me clean and make me innocent before you and adopt me, but also take my life and make it beautiful now. Make it yours. Be the architect of my reinvention. I hand you me and I say, God, meet me at this thirst and meet me there and show me how you truly quench. I hand myself to you and say I'm yours in Jesus' name. And if that's you today, just give me that good amen. Lord, you hear us. You hear us today. And I just pray now that you would take this day now and make us the fonts you desire for us to be and shower this thirsty and arid world around us with the hope, joy, and peace that only and love that only you can do. We are yours and we say we are available. Do with us as you wish. In Jesus' name, amen.